Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. As we're getting started, I wanted to uh, just say something that's probably like, it's hard to contest, I, I suppose, that just because something starts off well doesn't mean that it's going to finish well, right? I mean, there's, there's, I could think of a thousand examples. You pick the category. Uh, it's true for plane trips, right? Just because you take off well doesn't mean you've, you've got a good trip, right? The Titanic would work, right? That, star- that started off really well. Bad ending. True in sports. I think there's a lot of games that started off well that ended badly. It's true in politics. There are TV series that start off well and you just kind of give up. And I know that there's going to be probably my references aren't going to connect, but anybody watched Lost? That was one way back in the day. So awesome when it started. And then I just like halfway through, are they going to wrap this thing up? They didn't. There are musicians. There are enough musicians who start off well that do not finish well that they have a name for it called the 27 Club. Anybody heard of that? The 27 Club? There are enough musicians who die at age 27 because they come out of the gate with just so much fame and attention and money, and they get, and by the age of 27, they die of uh, overdoses or suicide, and it's tragic, but I mean, there are enough people that have something called the 27 Club. A lot of people, they appear to be on this great start, great road to success, and then they're, but kind of ticking time bombs. You might have had a relationship like this, a romantic relationship. How many of you, well, you may or may not want to raise your hand on this, but have had one of those relationships. Started off well, and then not, it didn't end so well. What you learn from that, looking back, like hindsight is always 20-20. You could look back at the way that thing started and kind of go, oh, I sh- that, there were the signs that that wasn't going to be a good relationship. And you don't see them at the time, but you can look back with clarity and learn from them, right? I think there's also people who they haven't yet necessarily had this crash landing of, a, of, a, of an end, but they are successful. But those people who are close to them know that it's not really success, that you can have this great start and be successful, but the people who really know you know that you're not really successful. I, I, I can only imagine that some of you have parents like this, that your friends and everybody thinks, yeah, your parents are really successful and happy, but those who live with your parents might know that their relationships are kind of a mess or there's kind of a hollowness to it. Success and starting off well, all that stuff is not as clear cut and obvious as you might think. And the guy we're going to study today in 1 Samuel is the picture, is the poster boy of a great start. And the, and the chapters we're looking at, by the end of it, he looks like a, he's off to a great start and it's just that's the end. And, and, but what we know is after today's verses, things are going to go downhill for him in a pretty big way. I feel like we're studying the, beginning, the beginnings of Judas. 
You know, if you were to study his life a few years into uh, his ministry with Jesus, you're like, things are looking pretty good for this guy. Well, I, I want to learn what we can from this man, and I will call it like five cautions for a great start. F- five cautions when starting well, because I know this applies to us. So uh, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9, and I will say as background, I actually have one of my cautions before I even read a verse here, because it comes from where we just came from. Uh, if you were here last week, Ben talked about First Samuel chapter 8, where basically the Israelites are wanting a king like all the other nations. Uh, they have been, over the, ever since the book of Judges, Israel has been ruled by people who come in and rescue Israel from their enemies. And they are not necessarily kings, they're called judges. And Samuel, who wrote this book, is, uh, is the last judge. The Israelites were tired of being led in a way that's different from all the other nations. They were looking around them at the the nations that had kings who would fight their battles and, and they could say, that's my king. Well, they wanted to have a king like all the other nations and they were tired of being different. They were having to trust in an invisible God who they wouldn't know how he's gonna come through for them. And they basically said, give us a king. And God says, well, through Samuel, he says, let me warn you though, you're basically breaking up with a good God to take on a king who is going to take from you. And the word take is repeated six times in like, uh, chapter eight, verses 10 through 18. This guy's gonna take, he's gonna take your crops, he's gonna take your money, he's gonna take your daughters, and, and he's gonna take and take and take, and you're replacing this, you know, you're placing a God who will give and give and give. And they say, sounds good to us and god says okay give them what they want and this guy is the answer to that prayer so my first caution is be careful what you ask for because god he may give it to you there there are a lot of times where uh, different chapters in my life i look around at what people have who aren't necessarily following god and i want the immediate gratification of what they have And if you spend time, it's one thing to kind of wrestle with wanting things that aren't necessarily what God wants for you, but if you spend all your time fixing your eyes on what other people have who aren't following God, God might eventually say, okay, your will be done. And he might give it to you, and it's gonna, it's going to prove the point in a painful way that that's not really what you need, you need him. And uh, actually, Romans chapter 1, the whole judgment of God is that people reject God. God reveals himself. People reject God. And, sa- and God says, uh, basically, he turns people over to their desires, and he lets people have what they want apart from them, apart from him. And God's judgment is to allow you to be satisfied apart from him. And that's what it looks like to um, uh, it's God's way of saying it's either my will be done or he's going to say your will be done. And if we persist in wanting stuff apart from him, he might eventually say, okay, I'll give it to you. And that's the first, that's the first warning. It's the warning of, uh, it's the danger of worldliness. And I remember a prayer that I prayed when I was in college because I, I, I remember struggling with certain temptations and sins and I just couldn't get myself to stop wanting things that I knew that God didn't want for me And I remember praying this, Lord, don't allow me to be satisfied with anything apart from you. 
And that was something I felt like he honored. And I, it's a prayer that I often have to repeat and pray again because it's one thing, you can't just turn off a desire, but you can say, God, don't let me be satisfied apart from you. Don't let me wander off and just seek things apart from you without it not going well inside internally. So that's the first caution. It's not, we're not even in our text yet. But be careful what you ask for because God might give it. And the guy that God is giving as, as an answer is going to turn out to be a ticking time bomb. So let's meet him. He's in chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul. Saul's name means asked for. Interesting. He was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Okay, so this is just an initial first impression we have of this guy. And he looks pretty good. He comes from a, a good, wealthy family. He was tall, taller than anybody else. Now, archaeologists have found that the average height of an Israelite in this time period was 5'6" pretty interesting. I would like it there because I would be considered tall. But, uh, you know, you might think of this guy as just like a towering over everybody. They, they theorized that Saul was probably anywhere from six to six four. Pretty interesting, right? That's not even that tall anymore. How many of you are between six and six four? Okay, will you go ahead and just stand our Sauls in the room? Go ahead. Just somebody, okay, you could be Saul. All right, yeah, and there's a few of you who are just, you know, yeah, okay, good, good. Those of you who are still sitting, you're humble or proud. I don't know which one it is. Um, but that's, that's not like uh, amazingly tall. He, but like Goliath was like, you know, head and shoulders over Saul. But he was, he was tall. He was also very handsome. And they go out of their way to make that point. He wasn't just handsome. He was like Miles Teller handsome. I had to do research for that one, honestly. I, who else would you say is handsome? Other, other than me, just kidding. Um, Chris Hemsworth, what, who, who do you say? My boyfriend. Oh yeah, good job, yes, yeah. Um, so Chris, uh, like Miles Teller, Chris Hemsworth, he was, he was like sexiest man and he was tall, he was wealthy. I mean, this guy looks good. And it, I, I don't think anybody would have a hard time seeing them and say like, oh, be my king. He, you. You are, uh, he, I mean, just being a tall helps in leadership, honestly. But here's the second caution. Your greatest features may be your greatest liabilities. I mean, being good looking, that's fine. That's good. But I'm, I'm going to make this general observation. Most good looking people know they're good looking. Is that fair? Is that unfair? Most good looking people kind of know it, right? And, and so to be good looking you see the world through that without assumption it could easily bring bring some pride with it okay that's not bad by itself being tall nothing wrong with being tall but it's interesting that Saul is the only Israelite described as tall of for for Israel for, for the Israelites every other description of a person being tall describes Israel's enemies the Philistines, for example, were their like chief enemies at the time. They were, no for their, they were known for their especially tall starting lineup. They had guys like Goliath. Uh, when they came into, you know, I can go into a bunch of examples, but they were very tall. That was a description that was like 
describe the enemies more than, more than the Israelites. He came from the tribe of Benjamin, which that's, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but God had promised the king would come from the tribe of Judah, and also Benjamin had had a very bad track record of in the recent past. In the end of the book of Judges, Benjamin, that tribe is a mess. And all these things, none of them are problematic in and of themselves, except for the Benjamin part, but what, what really sticks out is notice what's missing in this in initial introduction of Saul. There's not a single word about his spiritual life. It's just silent on that front. And Saul was the type of guy who had enough, uh, like enough of these great features and strengths that he had to have been confident. And I say, I would call this the danger of overconfidence. And this is true that like your greatest features will become your, what you most likely lean on for confidence. For example, uh, if you're charming, if you've got a charming personality, it's very easy to rely on your charming personality and measure how well you're doing by the way people respond to you. So if people like you, you're doing well. Where might that become a weakness? When you're trying to like lead faithfully, if you're trying to lead and you're measuring your leadership by the way people are responding to you, you're taking your cues from people and not from God, right? If you're more concerned about pleasing others than you care about pleasing God, then you're going to lead based on what serves you well on other people's reactions. It also make you very, um, uh, you'll become a people pleaser and people pleasers have a lot of fear, fear of man. Um, let me, there's so many examples that can come up with here. <coughs> um, Oh, if you're logical and rational, and that's your strength. Nothing wrong with being logical, nothing wrong with being rational, but if you take pride in that and you become overly confident, you're gonna be in a relationship someday with someone who uh, will emotionally pour their hearts out to you and you will logically just fix them. And you'll wonder why you're not connecting with your spouse or whoever, because you just say, well, you ought to just do this. And you take a real cold, uh, logical stance toward people. Logical people have a hard time with relational wisdom. Uh, there's, um, I would say, others. If you, are, if you grew up with money, having that, you call it a strength or a, 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 a something like an advantage, it's hard to appreciate the actual threat of not having money and it will affect the way you make decisions. You can just go on and on with these examples. The thing is, we trust very easily, we trust in the things that we get our confidence in, our strengths, and that doesn't end up though that all of life will require those particular strengths and they become often our greatest liabilities. So this is the danger of overconfidence. Let me keep going. Look at verse three, and I, I didn't say this at the beginning. I go very slowly at the beginning. I will speed up. I will not let you out at 5 p.m. because I know we have three chapters to cover. Okay, so look at verse three. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. So Saul and his servant, they're sent on this large search. And if they're on foot, it would have been an average about 20 miles a day. For three days, they're on this search. That probably would have been about a 60-mile search. And, um, and basically, what we find him doing at the very beginning is he's a shepherd, and he's trying to find donkeys. Now, donkeys were the large guardian. They were expensive, large guardian animals for the sheep. So... We meet Saul as a shepherd 
trying to find not sheep, but donkeys. Donkeys were not easy to lose. Sort of like losing your dad's pickup truck. Or, or better yet, it'd be like meeting a babysitter who's lost the kids. It's, this is not a good first impression. And, and shepherds in the Bible at this time were your great leaders in the Bible were shepherds, like Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, David, who we, who we will meet, was a shepherd. And so to meet a shepherd having lost donkeys is sort of like highlighting Saul's incompetence. I'm being a little hard on Saul, and I could be reading into the text a little bit, but we see how this plays out because as we follow his life, we're going to see the lack of faithfulness play out as you go on. David is really faithful as a shepherd, and it's going to play out for him as well. But this is the third caution, is the things that you do now, what you do now, defines who you'll become tomorrow. Pretty simple, but it's true. And you can imagine how this applies to you right now, especially in college. How many of you are taking a class where you're thinking, I'm, am I ever going to need to know this? Can I see every hand? I mean, you know, you're sitting here like, how do I find the average means of this standard deviation, blah, blah, blah. Um, and you're a fashion major. You're wondering, will I need, ever need to know this? Or I'm writing this paper and it's not even part of my major and I could just use chat GPT and, and get this thing pumped out. What's going to happen? Do you think that you'll be able to shift into a gear of character down the road easily? It gets harder as you go, and the stakes don't seem really high right now, but what you do, it starts to just, it becomes who you are, and the seeds you sow today are going to reap whatever seeds you're sowing. They're going to reap for better or for worse in, in the future. So you can, you can cut corners now, or you can, you can develop an incompetence, but Saul's incompetence, which is kind of subtly being highlighted, is going to be something that plays out for him. We don't see it clearly yet, but we will see it. So it's another caution. What you do today defines who you'll become tomorrow. So this search takes him eventually to a place called Zuf. Look at verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But his servant said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and he's a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. Now let us, go, let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And so now this search makes a little shift. Instead of searching for donkeys now, they're searching for a man. Who's the man they're searching for? That's right, Samuel. I didn't hear anybody say that. That's fine. Okay, so jump down to verse 14. They eventually get directions to Samuel, and verse 14 says, so they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on, on his way up to the high place. And now the day before, we, this is a little behind-the-scenes narrative at verse 15. It says, now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. It's an interesting word. Restrain could also be translated as oppress. 
here's the man who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel on the gate and said, tell me, where's the house of the seer? So Samuel, Saul does not know who Samuel is. And there's just a few observations here. Saul's looking for donkeys. He's not looking for God, right? And he lives within a few miles. I, I could pull up a map here, but Saul's hometown, he lives within a few miles of Samuel. Samuel is a legend already. He's like the Old Testament Billy Graham, and his servant and other people have heard of Samuel. They know about him, but Samuel, like Saul's like, who's this guy? I, it's, it's, he, he's kind of clueless spiritually because he's not interested in those things. And when he finally, they finally meet, Samuel, the seer, he's called the seer, he's a spiritual, a man of spiritual insight. He recognizes Saul before he ever had, has, has ever seen him because he talks to God and God talks back to him. Samuel's famous recognizing an obscure man. Saul is obscure and he doesn't even recognize this famous man when he sees him. And, and there's just this contrast. One man is very worldly, one man is very spiritual. And it, it's really in our face. And this pattern of sp Saul being spiritually blind is gonna kinda continue to play out and get worse and worse. So Saul, he has it all. He's got looks, he's got wealth, he's got a servant helping him, he's getting directions to find Samuel. He comes right up to Samuel, doesn't recognize him, and it just tells me uh, this fourth caution, I think is logically comes out of this. The more that you think you have, the harder it is to seek what you need. Saul thinks he just needs donkeys. And then eventually, you know, he just needs the seer. And, and he's, he's looking for all these things, but he's never really looking for God. There's no effort on Saul's part to even ask for direction on where the donkeys are. He gets that kind of direction from his servant. This is called the danger of self-reliance. Uh, John 15, 5, Jesus says, Abide in me, for apart from me you can do nothing. This is just generally true in life. The more that you think you have, the, the, the harder it is to seek God. It doesn't occur to you to seek God. I mean, frankly, when I'm comfortable, when things are going well, I don't pray as hard. I don't seek God as diligently. It's when I start to feel insecure and, or if I feel competent in doing something, I rarely seek God for wisdom because I think I already have it. But when, when I start to feel broken or needy, it's easier to seek God. Uh, Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you realize like, I don't have what I need, you're more likely to seek God. But if you feel like you have what you need, it's hard to remember to even seek him. So caution number four, the more you think you have, the harder it is to seek what you need. So look at verse 18. He says, oh no, verse 19. Uh, at verse 18, he says, tell me where's the house of the seer. In verse 19, Samuel says, I'm the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that's on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them. Don't worry about them, for they have been found. And for, for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? So Saul, he's just looking for directions. He doesn't get that. He gets so much more than he asked for. He has, he's, he's looking for directions to the seer. He gets the seer himself. He gets free information about his lost donkeys. 
he gets a prestigious invitation to a sacrificial meal with this guy, and he has the promise of a future destiny given to him, that like you're going to be someone special. And Saul's response looks really humble. He says, who am I? I'm just a Benjamin, Benjam, Benj, Benjamite, Benjaminite. I knew I was pronouncing that wrong. Like, why me? And, and moving on, he continues to get this red carpet treatment in verse chapter 10, verse 1. After their meal together, Samuel takes a flask of oil and pours it on Saul's head, kisses him, and he says, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? You shall, you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hands of their surrounding enemies. Saul's just looking for donkeys and the next thing he knows, he's president. He gets anointed king. I mean, how overwhelming. What a, like, whoa. And I mean, I would imagine that's like too, too good to believe or too much to even imagine. And, and the donkeys are, are taken care of. So verses two through eight, Samuel says, okay, and now from here, go, go over here. You're gonna meet a couple men. They're uh, going to give you information about your donkeys. Then you're gonna meet another couple guys. They will have goats, some wine, uh, some bread. They're gonna give it to you. Take it, it's a gift. And you're going to go on to, Gibe, uh, go on to Gibeath Elohim, and you're going to meet a group of prophets. Prophets were men who spoke from God. You're going to meet a, a group of prophets, and they're going to, and the Spirit of God is going to come upon you, and you, Saul, are going to prophesy. Okay, talk about like handwritten map, you know, directions, right? The, Saul goes, and all those things happen, just as, as um, <clears throat> Samuel said. Saul's road to the throne reads like a step-by-step instruction manual. It's really interesting because later we're gonna hear about David. He gets anointed and everything is against him. He gets pushed farther and farther away from the throne. Saul, it's like, here you go, red carpet, silver platter, step-by-step instructions. This caution's not on the screen, but it's a caution 4.5. Beware when things come really easily to you. That's not necessarily God's way of saying, this is my will. Um, But that's just a side note. My theory is that God made the road to the throne for Saul really obvious, really simple, because Saul was spiritually blind. He didn't know what he was doing, and and God was just kind of laying out a a way for him, and, and and he set him up to be successful, because it goes on and says in, in verses nine through nine and 10, that the spirit of God comes upon Saul. He starts prophesying and God changes Saul's heart. <coughs> Excuse me. I don't know a good way to cough with a microphone. Saul changes, Saul, uh, Samuel, cha- or God changes Saul's heart and, and equips him for ministry. Makes me wonder, and some of you might be wondering, does that mean Saul was a believer? Does he, is he, a, is he in heaven now? Okay, I don't know. But I can say this, I don't think that applies here because in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come on people temporarily to empower them for specific tasks. And it's going to say in chapter 16 that God took the Spirit away from Saul. Not only that, Matthew seven twenty-one through 23 is kind of frightening. It says, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is, who is in heaven. On, the, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I, I think Saul's 
transformation was an empowerment to do his job well, but it was a temporary thing. But Saul is effectively, in chapter 10, set up to become the king, and he gets publicly acknowledged as the king. By the end of chapter 10, Saul goes back home, and he's officially, he's officially the king, and it's a, a done deal. It's publicly recognized, and he's got solid men who are with him. Okay, I'm going to briefly summarize chapter 11 and close this up. Chapter 11 records the most amazing start for Saul because the first thing that happens is the enemies, uh, uh, one of Israelite's enemies were called the Ammonites. Nahash was the king. Nahash's name meant snake, which is a really cool name. Um, And Nahash comes in and overtakes, uh, I'm blinking, Jabesh Gilead. And it's a kind of an outlying city. They overtake Jabesh Gilead and, and basically... They make a treaty with Nahash, or an offer. They say, hey, please don't kill us. And Nahash says, I won't kill you if you agree to let me gouge out all of your right eyes, and then you become my servants. That would suck, right? Okay, so why would he do that? Just why would that be in the offer? Well, for one, if your right eyes gouged out, you still are able to see enough to farm and earn money for the, for the Ammonites, Okay, and the other thing, if you only have one eye, it's kind of hard to take up a bow and arrow and go to war. You have no depth perception. So he says, I will, I will basically handicap you so that you can't fight against me, but you can earn money for me. And they say, can we have seven days to think about it? And for some reason, Nahash agrees, gives them seven days. And then, then the news spreads. And verse six, news reaches Saul. And this is what happens. The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. And he basically says, join me to fight against the Ammonites or die. And 300,000 Israelites come together and go to war. And Saul, Israel was like a bunch of factions. They, They were not unified. Saul whips up an army overnight and he sends words to Nahash and says, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do whatever seems good to you. So Nahash's guard goes down and verse 11 says this, and the next day Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. They, they go in and they start just killing people. And it says, and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. I mean, like a major victory. Just comes in and just slam dunks. And this is, Saul is a stud at this point. I mean, like, good looking, seems humble, right? I mean, who am I? I'm just a Benjamite. I mean, one point, we, I skipped over it, but he was hiding because he, 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 I mean, he wasn't like f- openly full of himself. He saves a bunch of people from that kind of fate, and you would think, man, all is well, right? Well, yeah, let's see where this goes. This leads me to my last and biggest caution, and Saul's life will go on to prove the truth of it. Beware, having it all is not enough. Saul has it all at this point, but it's not enough. He's the poster child of a great start, and he has not just success publicly, great followers, good looks, wealth, everything you need. He's also got God's spirit empowering him for the job. He's got it all, 
and yet he doesn't have God. He, he doesn't know him personally. God is, is, a, is almost his crutch at the moment. Like he's, and you're going to see the evidence that he doesn't have a close relationship with him, but a close relationship with God is infinitely better than all the talents, all the help, all the tangible guidance, and all the, all the success that heaven and earth can give you. Makes me think of Matthew 16. Jesus says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what, can a, what shall a man give in return for his soul? I mean, at this point, if this were real time, I'd say, Saul, you're, you're awesome. Well done. You're doing great. But we know the end of the story. And, and so looking back with that hindsight being 2020, that clarity, let me just put the cautions back up. And I, cu- I coupled them with some dangers. And if you're frantically writing, you can just take a picture of the screen. But be careful what you ask for because God might give it. That's the danger of worldliness. Your greatest features may be your greatest liabilities, the danger of overconfidence. What you do today defines who you become tomorrow. Like to be faithful today or to be unfaithful today is going to define you. The more you think you have, the harder it is to seek what you think you, what you actually need the danger of self-reliance, and then the danger of pride. Having it all is never enough. You may have everything, but if you don't have God, your success will be a dead end. It'll be a good start. It's going to end tragically or in a very empty way. And the way it works is your great start will elevate you to a level of greatness, but your inner character won't be able to support that altitude the challenges of life, the opportunities, the temptations, they rise with you and the character, the lack of character will bring things crushing down. I know of a lot of pastors nowadays that it's so easy to get famous as a pastor. You, you put out a podcast, you, you put your, you, you know, get, get the word out. And if you're a good preacher, it's just easy to get success and fame. But there isn't the attending humility that goes with it or the, <clears throat> it, there are things that are learned in the school of failure, frankly, that prepare you for that altitude. And, and God is being good when it isn't just a red carpet all the way to success, but when things are being successful or when there's a strong start, these are the things to watch out for. And so let me just give a couple applications that are just, they're pretty obvious, but in case I need, I need obvious. So number one, don't allow your view of success to be defined horizontally. Simple enough. I mean, we look around, and there might be people we want to be like, but we don't take that as the final authority. You might have parents who want you to be a business major because that's the best place you can earn money, but God's really put a passion on your heart for something else. Uh, Who are you listening to? Where are you getting your definition of success? What does a successful relationship supposed to look like? Stuff is spoken about very clearly in God's word, or we can just look around. And if we get our definition horizontally, it will eventually lead us down a dead end. Uh, I, but I think Matthew 6 says it really well. But seek first the, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And uh, Jesus basically says, cultivate your relationship with God, and true success will follow. He knows how to give you success in the way that's true. Uh, and that might look like saying no to a six-figure job so you could be in God's will serving where your gifts and your passions intersect and you get to be serving him 
And he's going to give you, instead of a bunch of money, he might give you a bunch of joy and effectiveness and watch him provide for you. I don't know what, I mean, it's going to look different. You might end up with a six-figure job and be called to faithfully use that for his glory. I don't know. But I just know that these are points I need to regularly return to. I need to need God more and more. That's the only way I know I'm becoming more mature is the more I need him, the better off I am. Because I'm, I tend towards self-reliance. I'll just close by saying this. Um, you guys are not going to apply this well. <laughs> I mean, maybe you'll, some will you do better than others. I have not applied this stuff well. We are all prone to forget. And the thing is, we serve a God who doesn't say, you messed up, I'm going to call you Saul as well, and you're, you're in trouble. No, the way this works is Jesus came and saw that we all have a tendency to forget about him, to become self-reliant, to put our confidence in the wrong things. Jesus is the one person who had it all, including God. He came and lost it all on our behalf and experienced the dead end of having forsaken God. God actually forsook him on the cross. He did nothing wrong to get the cross. He experienced that disaster so that we wouldn't have to. For those of us who realize, I need help, when we place our faith in Christ, God says, okay, final score is on the board. You're with me. You're an adopted child of mine. And when we are in him, we now, from a secure place, get to worship him by following him. And when we get distracted by the world, they become painful detours for us, but God always brings his children back home. But we have that security. We have, a, we have something Saul didn't have uh, so clearly. We have this, uh, this assurance that we could be safe in Jesus. We can get this wrong and still have him because he lived the life we were supposed to live and died the death we were supposed to die so that in him we can have his life. Amen? So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for what you've done for us in Christ, that you have secured us, that if we have placed our faith in him, um, we get to know that this is not up to us to get this all right. But Lord, we do want to honor you with success, with the good starts. We also want to trust in you with the bad starts and the, and the failures. But Lord, I just pray that you would teach us what we need to learn individually where we are in our lives right now. So we lift these things up to you in Jesus' name, amen.